Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Paradox, A Different Way to Live. In this series, we will uncover the profound truths hidden within these seemingly contradictory statements as we embrace the challenge to follow Jesus' footsteps and be a catalyst for change in our world. We pray that this message is a blessing. Thank you, David, for that. <clears throat> How is everyone this morning? Everyone doing okay? My name is Scott. I am still one of the pastors here. Um, I've been away for like five weeks, so essentially, so you may have not met me. If you've come over that time, I would love to welcome you to church, and also I'd love to get to meet you. So after the service, please come and say hi. I'd love to get to know you a little bit better. But the blessing is that I get to be one of the pastors here to, to bring God word, God's Word. And we're actually in a series called Paradox, A Different Way to Live. And whether you've been a Christian for a while or you're fairly new to following Jesus, many of you would have experienced this, this reading of the Gospels, this reading of the Bibles and coming across teachings of Jesus that only feel counterintuitive, but they feel a little bit costly. He says things like, die to live. The first will be last. Do good to those that hate you. If you want to be great, you must become servant of all. And all of these sayings, they're taken from the mouth of Jesus, and sometimes they're a bit of a hard pill to swallow. You see, from the outside, we think, how can this even be possible? Are these paradoxes, are they even true? And more than that, what good will it achieve if I actually live these out? But from the inside, a follower of Jesus knows that this is the way to outwork God's kingdom here on earth. So this is the paradox of faith. This is the paradox of the kingdom of God. And this is the paradox of a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And David last week gave us the definition of what a paradox means. And I think we should actually start with that every week. The Oxford Dictionary says a paradox is a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition, which when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. You know, for me, reading the Bible, this has been my experience. When I first got saved, I started reading the Bible, and I was coming across these sayings of Jesus, and I'm like, nah, that can't be right. That can't be true. But the more I investigated, the more I actually lived this out, I found that his sayings were true. And sometimes it's hard to understand. Sometimes it's hard to rewire your brain for the way that the world has wired it. But it is absolutely true, and in my experience, that actually brings life and life to the full. But, But only if I actually embrace it and live it out. So the scripture today that we'll be reading from is Mark 10, 35 to 45. It says this, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom it is being prepared. Then the ten, the other disciples, they heard about this and they were indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them all together and said, you know know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
He said, whoever wants to become great among you must be servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is God's word. And so now I'm just going to pray before we get into the preaching. Would you please join me? God, would you help me preach this message with truth, with grace, and with love that they wouldn't look to me, they'd only look to you, the one who brings life and life in all its fullness. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You see, greatness is an interesting concept, isn't it? Because I think our culture determines a lot of the time what we perceive as greatness, right? Like our culture would tell us what is great. And when I think about greatness that we actually perceive, I thought to myself, what would I say is one of my personal or one of my greatest accomplishments in a, in a worldly sense being? And for me, it would be my surfing career, my bodyboarding career back 20 years ago, a very, very long time ago. And you might have heard me say bodyboarding, yes, not bodybuilding. When I tell people, they're like, you don't look like a bodybuilder. I'm like, I know. It, <laughs> it wasn't that. But about 20 years ago or longer than that, when I was young, I grew up surfing at Cronulla down in Sydney. And I started bodyboarding in the local competitions and I started winning those competitions. So that allowed me to go on to the regionals. Went to the regionals and I came second in the regionals, which allowed me to go into the state titles. Went to the New South Wales state titles and I won the state titles. Then after going to the state titles, went to the national titles, came 12th of the national titles and that allowed me to be sponsored. It got me board sponsors, clothing sponsors, wetsuit sponsors, sunglass sponsors. And then it actually got me onto the Australian tour, which was a pro tour for the pros around Australia. So we travel around Australia all year long, just doing different comps in different areas. And so doing those comps, I got seeded into the top 16, made my way up into the top 16, and was in the top 16 for a couple of years. One event, I came third in one event. And then I used to travel with one guy named Ben Player. He was actually a two-time world champion. He was uh, one of my friends, and we used to travel a lot. And this photo here is of me in Indonesia um, when we were on a, a, a trip there one time. And then I would just have all these events. And one event we came to was actually up here at Deba. And it was at Deba. And a guy from the United States from Hawaii came, Jeff Hubbard. He was a three-time world champ. And he was in my heat. And so my claim to fame is that I beat Jeff Hubbard, a three-time world champ. And so that is me. Look how much hair I've got there. <laughs> my gosh. I so want to live my past. <laughs> so... That's my claim to fame, my claim to greatness. What is your greatest accomplishment? Don't be shy, don't be humble. Generally, what's your greatest accomplishment according to, to how our culture sees it? Tell the person next to you. Tell them something you've achieved. There you go. There's a few shocked faces. I can see people going, really? You could do that? There's some great people in this room, I'm sure. People are like, wow, I can't believe that. There's one guy who um, this morning he photographed who? Nelson Mandela. He was a photographer and he photographed Nelson Mandela, which is crazy. Here's the thing. 
What's funny about this is before I was saved, I used to love to tell people how great I was about my accomplishments, about how awesome I was as a bodyboarder. But now when I tell people about my old surfing career, I feel a sense of arrogant pride. I feel a sense of like this self-promotion. I get this general sort of yuck feeling in my stomach, like I'm just trying to impress people with my achievements, trying to make them think I'm better than who I really am. And here's the truth about my surfing career. I wasn't that great. I was pretty average, to be honest. Like, surfing's pretty funny. Like, you can go out in the heat against three-time world champion, and you just get the biggest wave in the heat. It's just luck. It has nothing to do with talent. I was nowhere near as good as these guys. But I'd just turn up every week to all these events and just accumulate points. But I wasn't that great. I wasn't that good a bodyboarder. And here's the thing. My bodyboard career never made an impact, a positive impact on anyone. It probably actually made a negative impact on people because I was clambering over people, trying to be great, trying to be better than them. And what I want to know is, like, is that what I want my life to be known for? Is that the legacy that I want to leave behind? Yeah, it might be impressive in a worldly sense, but it's worth nothing in eternity. None of that translates to the time that we have with Jesus to come. And standing before Jesus, he's probably not going to be that impressed because he's like, yeah, I gave you that talent. It wasn't you. <laughs> wasn't you. question is, is that who I am? Is that my identity? Or am I something greater than my achievements? You know, the only thing now that I actually boast in is the cross. It's the only thing that I actually feel comfortable now boasting is what Christ has done for me. My achievements, especially now in ministry, are all by the grace of God. I can't claim any of them. He has taken me from death and to life, and he has gifted me and given me that ability to, to reach out to preach, to, to reach out to the lost, but that's got nothing to do with me. All I can do is boast in him. You know, we have this statement or this, this saying now these days, it's the goat. This person's the goat of basketball, the goat of surfing. It actually means greatest of all time. And we throw this around on social media. He's the goat, she's the goat. And I just think about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan would be the goat of basketball, right? The greatest of all time in basketball. But if you ever watch that documentary about his team, you'll actually notice that he left so many people in his wake. He was absolutely ruthless to be the best. He was ruthless to win. He didn't make a positive impact in people. He just drove over the top of people. And I can imagine MJ standing before Jesus going, I am the goat. The greatest of all time. I was the best basketball to ever walk the face of the earth. And Jesus goes, oh yeah, that's great. But who did you serve? You see, we clamber over one another for greatness. And I just want to put a caveat here. Does that mean accomplishments are bad? Or being good at sport or business or in life in general is bad? No, not at all. Because we can actually use them to serve others. We can use our achievements to influence for good. But let's be honest with ourselves. Generally, it's all about us, right? Generally, it's all about us becoming great. What are you, what am I living for in life? Is it simply greatness to impress others? And this is what we actually see in this context of the passage of Scripture where James and John, they're wanting to be great. They're wanting to be greater than the rest of the disciples. It says in verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, they said, we want you to do to us for whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. 
To understand this, we need to go back to the context. What is actually happening here? What's happening in this story? Where are we at in the story? Well, in this story, Jesus has called the 12 disciples. He's actually hand-selected 12 men that he's actually going to pour himself into, that he's going to have follow him in all of his life to see how he lives. So he selects the 12, but he also selects this, this close three. So James and John and Peter often are with Jesus at these other special times. So he has this, this inner circle of a three as well. And so Jesus goes out, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, and he's showing everyone that he is the Messiah, God in the flesh, but all these amazing miracles that he's doing, and the disciples are seeing this. But then Jesus takes John, James, and Peter up onto a mountain in chapter 9, the chapter just before this, and it's called the Mount of Transfigurations, where Jesus is actually transfigured before their eyes, where he shines like the sun. They see him in his glory, this supernatural glory. And Elijah and Moses actually appear to Jesus. They start talking about his death. And these three, they see that. And they see that and they go, this isn't just a prophet. This just isn't a man. This is the one that was promised to come. God, Emmanuel, God with us. And so they see this time. So after witnessing this crazy event, after seeing Jesus in some of his heavenly glory, they're convinced that he's the Messiah and he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. So they're super keen to be part of that. So they come to Jesus and they make this request to be granted to sit at his right and his left. So for us now in Australia in 2023, this might seem weird or not that big deal, but it was in that time. You see, the left and the right hand in glory speaks about positions of honour. The two places described here are a place of honour everywhere, not only in the Middle East in that time, it was all through ancient times, also in royal courts, even at a public dinner. You knew who was important by who was sitting at your right and your left. So if I held a banquet, the important people would be right up with me, one on the left, one on the right, and the further down you got, the less honourable you are. So if you're sitting right down the end, you just made it in. But you knew who the important people were. So they asked to be seated, the right and the left, as two principal members of his cabinet or his government, his team, his crew. They wanted to be the two most important, powerful people next to Jesus. And James and John knew that these positions in the Messianic kingdom were going to be super influential and powerful because they knew the right side of Jesus was this side of authority and dominion. You see, in ancient time, your right side or your strong arm was the side of, of importance and power. Think about it. Like most people are right-handed, right? So that is your strong arm. Usually if someone comes at you, that's like you're going to throw a right first. Probably it's your best shot. Or if you need to get the lid off a container, you're going to use your right hand. So it's this side of power and dominion. And we've all heard the term right-hand man, right? They wanted to be the right-hand man, the one who's trusted the one Jesus knew that would be by their side, that would have that power, that would have that dominion with him. You know, for me as a lead pastor here at New Life Cooley, to have David here with me is just such a blessing. I would say that David is my right-hand man. When I go away, like the last five weeks, David takes over. I trust him. I love him. I know he loves God and loves people, so I can put that in his hands and go, it's okay, he can lead in my absence. That's that right-hand man understanding. And we actually know that this position is super important and significant because we know that the Bible tells us Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. Therefore, James and John, they're not asking for a small thing here. 
Equally, the left-hand side was not an ordinary seat either. It was a, a seat of command where you'd actually command from there. So it's not a mere desire to be near Jesus or just be close to him at his moment of triumph of bringing in the kingdom that motivated them for these positions. It was actually selfish ambition. It wasn't loyalty. John and James, at least, probably would have seemed that this was a natural extension of their position of the top three with Peter. Well, it's got to be one of us because we're you know, the top three. You see, James and John believed that Jesus was about to establish his messianic kingdom where he would actually come, as the prophets say, and destroy all of their armies and set up this kingdom reign forever. So therefore, they're asking for the highest possible position. Have you ever wanted a position? Have you ever like, desired a position, whether it be at work, where you thought, no, I should be the one leading here. I should be the one telling people what to do. Have you ever desired a position in your family, with your friends, in the areas where you have influence? What was your motivator? Was your motivator to serve? Was your motivator to be recognized, to be respected, to be honored, to have that position of power? You see, the motivation of the heart is the problem. And that is the problem here. Jesus sees the heart of James and John, and he actually sees ours too. C.S. Lewis says, James and John's request in Mark 10 demonstrates their human tendency to seek positions of power and privilege. They were focused on their own status rather than understanding the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. So, knowing their heart, Jesus responds to James and John. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on the right or the left is not for me to grant. These paces belong to those for whom they are prepared. He actually calls them out. He goes, you don't know what you're asking. Because they're thinking about greatness defined by the world. You see, worldly greatness is about accomplishment, right? Power, privilege, position. And we see this greatness by the world in standards like sport. People who are amazing at sport, we're like, that's awesome. We look at business. People who are amazing at business make a lot of money. We look at people with talent, either music or other talent. We're like, oh, they're an idol. They're so cool. You know, fame, money, wealth, accumulation of goods, power, influence. These are all the, the trappings of the worldly understanding of what greatness is, right? And their legacy is I'm the best of, or I'm the richest, or I've been the most powerful. They're worldly standards. You know, to stand here and say that I don't struggle with this stuff would be a lie. As a pastor, we struggle with all this stuff. We're human, just like you are. You know, when people say bad things against us, it hurts. It doesn't make it nice. We can get sucked into wanting to look for fame or wanting to be loved or wanting to be liked or wanting people to think that we're amazing, really spiritual and special. You know, it was really interesting when we went to Israel. I led the team over there, um, and there was a bunch of people who came along, and we were going to do devotions each morning before we went out to different areas. And I'd look at the itinerary, and I'd go, okay, we're going to the Mount of Olives, or we're going to the Mount of Transfiguration. And I knew the stories behind that, so I thought I could bring the devotion and help them understand what we're going to look for the day, what we're going to go and explore. And I just had this conviction that, yeah, but that's about you, Scott. That's about you telling everyone how knowledgeable you are. What if you throw it out to them? 
And so I did. I said this morning, whoever wants to put their hand up for the next day, just put your hand up. And each and every day, someone else put their hand up. I didn't even do devotions once. And it was amazing. Do you know why? Because they brought what they were experiencing. They brought what they were struggling with. And the rest of the team gathered around them and loved them and supported them. It was so transformative. But as a leader, I could have taken that, my authority. I could have exercised that authority and ran the devotions. But what happened was more beautiful, more life-changing for them and for me. So the question is, what is my motive? The question is, what is your motive? It's the same with James and John. Jesus knows their motives. He's like, you guys are asking me this because you think about all these earthly things, you're going to get power and position. But I actually have a different mission. What you're really asking for is to live the life that I am living. He's like, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm drinking or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? He says, this is what you're really asking. You're not asking for positions of power. You're asking for a position of suffering, of service. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Jesus, we're going to suffer to save the world. Can you be baptized with the, the Spirit? Yeah, you will be, but that Spirit is going to baptize you that you would serve and love others, that you would have a mission. N.T. Wright says, James and John's ambition to sit at Jesus' right and left in Mark 10 reveals their incomplete understanding of the nature of Jesus' kingdom. They were influenced by culture's expectations of power and honor rather than embracing Jesus' call to sacrificial service. You know, this is not just James and John's problem either. Sometimes we fail to see here in this text that this was an issue for all the disciples. They actually all wanted to be great. They all wanted that top position. Verse 41 says, then that when the ten, that's the other disciples, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. This wasn't just like, oh, you shouldn't have asked for that position. They were like, what the? That should be me. Who the heck do you think you are? Indignation means an anger, like a frustration, like this is not okay. There's an injustice that's happened right now, and you can't claim that position. I should have it. Luke 22, 24, we see this. It's written down. It says, A dispute also rose among them, the disciples, to which one of them was considered to be the greatest. They're constantly arguing. Which one's the best disciple? I'm better than you. David, you're better than me. Whatever. Right, there's this constant trash talk going on. So we see this not just a James and John issue. Therefore, we can't stand at a distance and shake our head like it doesn't apply to us as well. We're just like them. We are. We know better 2,000 years later, and I would argue we might even be worse. Because in Western culture, in Western countries, we worship sports people. We worship music icons. We worship political leaders, those who are deemed greatest in their field of influence, and we want to be just like them. Church, there's only one person that we should worship and want to be like, and that's Jesus. So Jesus, knowing the disciples' hearts and our hearts, he teaches them the truth of his kingdom, of how his kingdom operates. Verse 42 says, Jesus called them together and said, You know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. See, Jesus contrasts in the common understanding of leadership and authority prevalent in our world with the principles of the kingdom. He observes these worldly systems where leaders and influential people, they often exercise power and dominion over people to control them, seeking their own interests and their own personal gains. Can I get an amen? How often does that happen? 
rulers of this world lord over people and exercise authority over them. To lord over someone is to use your position and your influence to impose your will on people to enforce your agenda. And this is not okay for us as Christians to imitate these worldly oppression, control, and selfishness. We are to imitate the kingdom of God. So Jesus actually challenges us to examine our motives and desires. Are we seeking power and position for our own glory, or are we truly willing to be disciples of Jesus and live his way and serve others? You see, Jesus is super clear in verse 43. He says, not so with you. Not so with you. He said, whoever wants to be great among you must be servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. This is worldly greatness, but not so with you. This is a straightforward command from Jesus. You see, Jesus takes leadership. He takes greatness and flips it on the head. It's the opposite of the world. You see, the world wants to oppress and dominate where Christian leadership is serving and loving. Christian leadership is not a right or a position of power. It's a position of responsibility and a position of service. You see, Jesus flips leadership and greatness on its head. Christian leadership is not top-down, but bottom-up. You want to be great as a Christian? Then it actually means sacrifice, service, not power and prestige. You will serve, not be served. Now, it's quite interesting. Anyone heard of Simon Sinek? So he's a leadership um, guru in the world, a secular guy. He does a lot of TED Talks. And even the secular world is, is grabbing onto this idea that leaders are meant to serve, taking the teachings of Jesus. He says, hey, leaders should be serving and loving their people. They should be the last to eat. And he actually tells this talk about how to be, he can tell the, the best public speakers. And those best public speakers are people that come to give, not to get. He goes, the ones that aren't great public speakers are those ones that come to get. He said, you'll notice them. They'll come and they'll just tell you how awesome they are. They'll tell you about all their, their knowledge and, and how they're great at making money and doing all these things. And then they'll go, but if you want to know the secret, you've got to buy my book. They'll just leave you hanging. He says, the best speakers come and go, I've got something to give. I've actually got something that will set you free. And I'll give you all of it. They're latching onto this idea of a kingdom mindset. So what is greatness in the kingdom of God? Well, here's the paradox. Greatness is actually exercising grace. It's exercising love. It's serving others. It comes down to actually sacrifice. We have to be patient, suffering. We have to be mild, meek, gentle, humble. We give not to get. We give not to get. I often tell people who are looking at preaching, I give them that principle. I'm like, hey, when you're up there preaching, it's not about how knowledgeable you are. It's not to make people like you. It's to give them God's word because God's word can set them free. If you come with the mindset to give them something that they need, then God will work through that. If it's all about you, it's not going to work. You know, kingdom mindset is a legacy of people served, lives affected. And what we actually get, we get a heavenly reward that we will enjoy in eternity, not an earthly recognition. You see, it's a totally different list to the world. And the disciples, they did learn this lesson. Peter, one of the top three who Jesus showed his glory to, along with James and John, actually says in a letter in 1 Peter, this is after Jesus died, resurrected, ascended into heaven. He's writing to a church. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, 
they should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter's like, hey, you know what? This is greatness in the kingdom. Take whatever gifts you have, whatever talents you have, and bring them to serve others. And do it in the grace that God has given you, that he would be praised. You see, we don't do this that we would be praised. We do it that he would be praised forever and ever. And we do this not only in the good seasons, but in the bad seasons. He doesn't say, hey, only when things are going great, do that. I remember we have a conference at Rabina when I was a pastor there. But this was before I was a pastor. It's called Naturally Supernatural. And it's a conference where a man would come and come from overseas and, and it'd be about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it was just a, always a great, great conference. And I remember I was at the time working as a chaplain, full-time in chaplaincy for Church of the Christ. And I was still serving at church though. So I was just volunteering, leading the Connect team, leading our men's ministry and helping out at events and stuff. And I remember I was just going through a rough time and I just needed some feeling. I just needed God to touch me. I'd been pouring out so much. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to this conference and I'm just going to receive. So I went and sat up the back Friday night. So there's worship and there's ministry time and I felt nothing. I didn't sense God in the, in the worship. I didn't sense him in the ministry time and no one come and prayed for me. I went, that's okay, we've got all day tomorrow. It's a full day on Saturday. This is all good. Turn up on Saturday didn't feel him in any of the worship. No one come and prayed for me. Didn't sense his presence. I remember that night just thinking, what's going on? It's like, it's not God's fault because I know you're good and you're full of grace. And you know what, God? If I never sensed your presence again, you don't owe me anything. You've died for me. You've set me free. If I don't sense you ever again in my life, that's okay. So the next day when I went to church, I went, you know what? I'm just going to go back till I know what I'm called to do, and that's to love and serve, regardless of what God does. So I went back, and I said to the team, hey, I'm here if you need me. They asked me to come down the front and pray at the end when there was ministry time, and I met God. When I was praying for people, some of his heart, some of his love for them, I would sense, and it would break me. And it was just so beautiful that I'm meeting God in this moment of service to others. I learned this crucial lesson that day. And that was when we focus on others, when we sacrifice, when we love and serve others, we meet with God because that, who is, that is who God is. What we do is we perfectly align with his character and his nature. And when we do that, we get a deeper revelation of God, of God's will and our purpose in life. And you know what? When we know God and we know our purpose, we actually have a deep peace and we find true joy. You see, when Jesus was asked, what are the two greatest commandments? He said, love God and love others as yourself. What does it mean to love God? It means to worship him and serve him. And what about loving others ourselves? It's, it's to love them. It's to put them before us. It's to serve them with a pure heart, not to get anything returned. You see, true love is sacrificial. True love is outward focus. It's outward pouring. True love is actually serving others. If you want to be like God, if you want to be like Jesus then sacrificial service is the only way. I mean, look at Jesus' life throughout the Gospels. If you actually read the Gospels and see how Jesus lived, he served God. He worshipped God. He loved doing the will of God. But he also loved and served humanity. John Calvin says, Mark 10, 35 to 45, reminds us that Christ's kingdom operates on a different set of principles in the world. 
True greatness is found in humble service and giving ourselves to the benefit of others. You see, this encounter the disciples have with Jesus teaches them that Jesus redefines greatness. He turns the world's understanding of power and authority upside down, showing us that true greatness lies in serving others. Jesus reveals this radical vision of greatness, the radical vision of the kingdom of God, and he actually calls us to reject the world's power games and instead brace a life of humble service, imitating his example. Jesus teaches us that greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by our willingness to put others' needs before our own. So the question I need to ask myself, that we need to ask ourselves is, does my life reflect this paradox? Or does this life reflect, does my life reflect this truth? Because as disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, members of his kingdom, it actually should. So we need to ask ourselves a question. I'm asking myself this question too. Where can I serve? Can it be at home? Can I serve my wife? Can I serve my kids? Can I serve my brother? Can I serve my sister? Is it in the family? How do I serve my greater family? How do I see them as Christ sees them? How do I serve at work? Where at work can I influence others, not for my own glory, but for God's glory? Where can I serve in my local community where they need to know the light and the love of Christ? Where can I serve at church? You see, we're either building and living out one of two kingdoms. We're either living out the kingdom of Scott or we're living out the kingdom of God. Does a band want to come up? And I love how Jesus actually finishes this teaching. He actually points to himself. Even though he is God, God in the flesh, worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be served. He could have come to this earth and gone, get down on your knees. Go and get me a drink. Sort out my dinner for me. He could have come and demanded that. Why? Because he is worthy of that. Because he's God in the flesh, but he didn't do that. He came to serve, to serve us by even freeing us from our sin. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man, talking about Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Even I, God Almighty, came to serve. He gets down and he washes at the feet of the disciples. They should have been washing his feet. He goes, do you want to see what it means to be great in the kingdom? I'm going to do this. And then he goes to the cross and sheds his blood that we will be washed clean of our sin. That sacrificial service that we see there on the cross of Jesus. This is why he came. He took on flesh to reveal the character and nature of God to each and every one of us. That we would see true love. That we would encounter true love. He looks at you, he looks at me and goes, I want to do this. I want to serve you because I love you. I want to lay my life down. I want to be beaten. I want to be bashed. I want to be nailed to a cross to prove how much I love you. And here's the beauty of the gospel. All we need to do is repent. Repent of our sin and put our faith and trust in him. Who else would you put your trust in? Who else would you like to come under the lordship of? Jesus says, repent, put your faith and trust in me and I'll give you eternal life. Martin Luther says, Mark 10, 45, beautifully expresses the essence of the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself to serve and redeem humanity, setting an example for selflessness and love. And I would include this quote, setting an example of pure greatness. Pure greatness. Church, even the secular world recognizes this to be true. 
In 2013, Time Magazine rated Jesus the most influential person in all of history. All of history. A secular magazine. A man who came with a mission to love and to serve. If the secular world recognizes that to be true, why are we not living this out in our daily lives as Christians? Why does this not impact us? Because this is the paradox of greatness. Leadership in the world is lording over others. But leadership in the kingdom is sacrificial service. Greatness in the world is top-down domination, but greatness in the kingdom is bottom-up living. Greatness in the world is how many people worship, adore, and serve and love you, but greatness in the kingdom of God is how many people have you loved, have you served, have you sacrificed for? My hope today for myself, digging into this scripture throughout the week, is that I would recognize there are places where I can extend grace, where I can serve and love. My prayer today is that this paradox would be written on our hearts, that it would be a reality in our lives, that we would actually operate on Jesus' principles as an example. And if we do, I believe we will see freedom, we will see joy, we will see peace, we will see breakthrough, we will see victory in people's lives. Because it's not about us, it's about them. We would see the kingdom of God on earth as is in heaven. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you, Jesus, that you come with such truth that when we explore them, we actually see life and life in all its fullness. God, I pray that you would write these paradoxes on our heart. And Holy Spirit, you would even come right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you even reveal to us in this moment, where can we serve? Where can we love? Where can we show people your grace, your mercy, and your truth? How can we glorify you, Lord, with what we have? Help us. Give us the strength, Holy Spirit, to be obedient and to follow you always. And as we're in this moment of prayer, as we're got our heads bowed, I want to give you an opportunity too, if you've never received that forgiveness, if you've never received the sacrifice that Jesus did for you on the cross, I'm here to tell you today it is available for you right now. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to restore you. He wants to give you a new life. If that's you, if you want to repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Him, I just ask if you'd raise your hand now. I want to pray for you. You can do that right now. Thank you. I think we can all pray this together because I think it's the time where we can commit ourselves to the Lord. We say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying for my sin. I repent and put my faith in you. I thank you that you rose again in victory over my sin and death. And I ask for your Holy Spirit to be with me forevermore. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.